You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Basketball fans here with Ann Myers Drysdale. I mean, just a complete legend of basketball, period, um, from your time in college with the national team and in professional basketball in the NBA, the WBL, which we'll talk about, and, and elsewhere. Um, so, Ann, first, I just want to get your thoughts when you reflect on your career um, in basketball that continues with your with the roles that you have with the Phoenix organizations um, what stands out to you most I think probably just the growth in uh, participation and uh, how the game has changed uh, certainly with title nine has been a big difference in uh, where women's sports generally is today and the opportunities that young girls and young women have to get an education through athletics. And, um, but the game of basketball, the fact that uh, the WNBA has been around 22 years now, yeah. uh, huge. And uh, certainly we like to feel that uh, who participated in the WBL was a, a huge part of where the league is today, not only the WBL, but uh, the subsequent other leagues that, uh, we're after that in the ABL. Uh, certainly we think that those leagues were instrumental in where the WNBA is today. And, um, you know, the fact that you've got young girls that have dreams to uh, play professional basketball and make a living out of it. And uh, whether it's here in the United States or overseas and, um, you know, that's, that's been a positive. Yeah. And as you said, so much growth in women's basketball, truly in, in women's sports um, and you being right there to, to ride that wave to today, I'm sure has been amazing. But I did want to talk to you a little bit about you mentioned the WBL and some of the other leagues that uh, led up to the WNBA. But if I'm being honest, and this is this comes from someone who played basketball all throughout high school and has followed the WNBA, it wasn't until I realized the 2018 uh, Women's Basketball Hall of Fame class. You've got Katie Smith, Tina Thompson, Chris Daly. But then you also see that there's a contingency from the WBL that will be honored. And that was the first time that I'd even heard of the league's preceding uh, the, the WNBA and the ABL. Um, you know, how, how do we recapture some of that history? Well, there have been some books written on the WBL. And it was called the Women's Professional Basketball League, so WPBL, and they shortened it to the WBL. And uh, and after that league folded after two and a half years, um, they had a couple other leagues that tried to start. And then uh, what year was it? 94, 93, or I think 93, uh, the ABL, which I was involved with that in the beginning and uh, was able to start. And that went about as long as the WBL did. And uh, and that was going right into the 96 Olympics, which I think David Stern had already, I think, talked to enough people to um, gather uh, NBA teams together to talk about starting a women's league. And uh, certainly it started after the 96 Olympics and uh, the ABL had to fold and uh, and they kind of those players came into the WNBA. So. Um, you know, the WBL started in, in 1978, and it was talked about when I was a freshman at UCLA in 1975. Uh, Kodak was really the, the first sponsor for women's uh, basketball in college. And uh, there's a guy named, um, oh, why can't I think of it? Uh, oh, my gosh, Mel Greenberg. Uh, oh, yeah. right. 
Mel Greenberg out of Philadelphia. And uh, I remember being a freshman at UCLA and making that All-American team. And Mel was talking about, even back then in the, the mid-70s, that there would be a women's pro league. Uh, we had no idea when it was going to be. But I, I was very aware of women's basketball. And you go back before the WBL, which was uh, AAU. And it was AAU was not AAU that it is today. Um, AAU was more or less for older players that were playing college or out of college. So you had National Business, Business College. You had Wayland Baptist. Uh, my sister, who's eight years older than I, and she played pro softball, but she played uh, basketball at Cal State Fullerton for Billy Moore, and they won the championship in 1970. And, uh, and she played volleyball, basketball, and, and softball. But um, I was aware of these women that were playing uh, basketball. Patty, my sister, played against Nero White and Joan Crawford. And, uh, and I got to play against Wayland Baptist. And uh, so, I mean, I was fortunate enough at the age of 13 to play on these teams, which again, were basically college women, uh, women that were in their twenties. And um, so the women's game, 1953 was the very first year that we, uh, the United States was in the world championships. And uh, John Head was the coach who had coached at Nashville Business College. And and a lot of those players were made up of uh, NBC and Whalen. And, but you had the Raytown Piperettes, and you had all these other teams throughout the country that were playing AAU basketball. And uh, so when Title IX got passed in 72, and in 1975 really was the very first year that they had scholarships, which I was the first woman to get a full athletic scholarship at UCLA. And so things started to change. And, um, you know, with these scholarships and women starting to get uh, to play basketball and volleyball, whatever the sport, track and field and, and so forth. But, um, you know, and as I said, 1978 was the very first year of the, uh, of the WBL and we had won the championship at UCLA and I was the number one draft pick. And, um, but at that time we still had to be amateur for the Olympics. I was on the 1976 Olympic team mm-hmm. And that was the very first time they had women's basketball in the Olympics and the United States won silver. And so I started on that team and uh, was playing USA basketball and had planned to go to the 1980 Olympics. So I didn't want to forego my amateur status and go into a league that, yes, it had just started, but also I had felt that if it just started, it would be there a year later after I competed in the 1980 Olympics. My brother David had been at UCLA and played for Coach Wooden on his last championship team in 1975 when I was a freshman. So my brother David was playing in the NBA. And um, so 79, I, I did not play, uh, I, well, I did not go into the WBL, even though I was the number one draft pick by the Houston Angels. And, um, and that was hard for me. It was a hard decision, but I wanted to go to the 1980 Olympics again. And then I got a call. We had just gotten back uh, from the world championships. We won gold for the first time in a long time, the United States. And uh, in 1979 in Korea, I was the captain of that team. And uh, we'd gone to the Pan Am Games. And we'd come back from Russia from the Spartacade Games. We were getting ready to go to Mexico for uh, the World University Games. And so we were up in Squaw City, um, up in um, California, Squaw Valley. And uh, we were working out. And... um, I had gotten a call from the new owner of the Indiana Pacers to play and try out for uh, 
the NBA. And uh, so even though my brother was already playing in the NBA and, um, you know, it was a hard decision because I wanted to go to the 80 Olympics. And uh, so I chose to have the tryout and I forewent my amateur status. And then all of a sudden, Jimmy Carter, our president, boycotted the 80 Olympics, which was very, very difficult. And for a lot of people. And um, and then, uh, you know, the WBL that first year, uh, some of the players that were on our Olympic team in, in 76 and Pan Am teams and so forth, they were playing in the league. And uh, I think Rita Easterling was on our Pan Am team in 75. And, and Trish Roberts, I think, uh, who was on our Olympic team, played one year at Tennessee for Pat. Um, I think Trish was the MVP of the league that first year. And uh, so, but it wasn't getting a lot of recognition. There were 12 teams. And, um, and I had my tryout with the Pacers. And, and then uh, when I didn't make the team as a player, I was still working for them. Um, I wanted to play. And, and so the Angels traded my rights to the New Jersey Gems. And, uh, and that's where I played my one season. Signed a three-year deal, um, but they only paid me um, part of my salary from the first year. So I sat out the second year because they hadn't paid me. And um, and then that third year, the league folded. Yeah, and from what I have been able to to read about the WBL, uh, that last point that you hit, you know, the the discrepancies with pay, um, and not receiving payments either on time, in full, or at all. Um, what was your? What were the the takeaways? Um, how? What was that first WBL experience? Just kind of having all of these great opportunities, and then this one uh, not necessarily working out the way you probably hoped it would. Well, absolutely. You're right. It, it was a great opportunity. And that's how I looked at things. I mean, things just kind of fell into place for me. People always ask me, what are your goals and dreams? And, and uh, I think the, the one goal I always had in life was to, at the age of uh, 12, I think, um, 10, maybe it was 10 or 11, I read a book on Babe Diedrichson Zaharias. And uh, she gave me the dream to be an Olympian, to represent our country. And I thought it was going to be in track and field, because um, that was a sport that I excelled at and because I played seven sports in high school but um you know and then basketball fell into place for me and timing wise uh the first olympics when I was a sophomore at UCLA so um from there I mean just everything started kind of happening for me whether it was the first scholarship at UCLA whether it's the olympics whether we win a championship my brother David and coach Wooden being there at UCLA and because I personally feel that myself and women's basketball might have not gotten the recognition without, if I don't go uh, to UCLA, because uh, whether my brother is there, because it's a personal interest story with the media, and Coach Wooden, who is winning championships and validating women's basketball. And uh, so when, when I didn't go into the uh, WBL, there was not a lot of exposure about the women's league. And, uh, and again, we had 12 teams, and some teams were folding right away. Uh, I recall when... Um, uh, and, and Houston trading my rights away, you know, they trade me back East. And I think that, that might've been, <clears throat> and it's all a learning process because in the very beginning you saw in the WNBA that Cheryl Swoop stayed in Texas, where she's from. Um, Rebecca Lobo stayed in New York where she's from the East coast and Lisa Leslie stayed out on the West coast in LA. And so in the WBL, they just drafted people and you, you were just ended up in cities instead of, where players coming out of college were familiar in that area, they were going to different parts of the country, 
which was tough to sell and market. But I think that that was a learning process. So they trade my rights to um, New Jersey. And, um, you know, there, there were, uh, the average um, salaries at that time were between six and 15,000. 6,000 and 15,000. And our season was a seven month season. Right. And uh, it was a regular basketball season. So unlike the WNBA, which is like four and a half and during the summertime, and it changes every two years because of the Olympics and the world championships. So, um, you know, I go back east to New Jersey and uh, just the way things were run, it just kind of, uh, I don't think a lot of people knew how to really treat the, the, the league itself. And uh, we would, for example, we went to uh, New Orleans and uh, play a game they, there. They played their games at Tulane. And uh, we couldn't shower after the game because we had to catch a, a flight right back to uh, New Jersey because we didn't have the money to spend the night in the hotel. Um, we had other teams that were like the Dallas team. They were supposed to come in and play us, but they didn't have any money to travel. So, you know, the game was canceled. Um, you know, things like that happened all the time when that was, and I came in in the second year of the league. And, um, so I, I was co-MVP with, uh, Molly Bolin who played in Iowa. And, uh, but as I said, teams were kind of folding. The Houston team actually did fold. Uh, they were playing their games where the, uh, the Houston Rockets played. And I think that was a huge mistake on some of the team's parts because, you know, they didn't have the, the finances to, um, really rent out the arena in those big places. Yeah. Um, I know in New Jersey, we played at a high school. Uh, it was a nice high school, but uh, probably didn't have the uh, pull to, uh, you know, bring a lot of people in, 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 uh, in Elizabethtown. But, um, you know, I, I think again, it was all a learning process and um, we had some terrific players and uh, um, you know, there were certain towns that probably did a better job and, in uh, promoting in um, small town areas. I know San Francisco where they played their games and uh, you know, they had a pretty good crowd and they had a good ownership behind them too. And certainly you had, and most of the ownerships were men and uh, you had to have a positive thing. And a lot of them didn't know how to run a professional team. And they looked at it as a men's team kind of thing. And they treated the women as little girls like, Oh, we'll take care of you kind of thing. And, uh, and I think a lot of the young women had, we all had to learn how to be, professionals also because this was all new to everybody yeah and that's why I have so much pride for the WNBA that you know a lot of these women because they've gone overseas and played and uh you know they've grown up very quickly and uh, they've become pros and and yes we don't make the money that the men do uh certainly my brother made more money than I did but um I was just I, I it was an opportunity to do something that I loved and uh, they were giving it to me yeah, and I, and I wonder if we can unpack some of that a little bit, because I think the conversation still today, Anne, are, are about um, obviously comparing women's basketball to men's basketball um, at the professional level in particular, thinking of contract sizes, etc. Um, but then also there is a pocket of people who want women's basketball to be treated as women's basketball, knowing that there will be differences and that those differences are – 
are what they are and they're okay. They're, it's okay not to aspire even to be men's basketball. Where do you think the, the happy medium is as we want to continue to see women's basketball uh, thrive? Is it a little bit of a- adopting what's worked for men's basketball? Is it a little bit of um, finding your own niche? Well, that's a great question. And I I don't know if I have the answer. I'm sure I don't because otherwise we'd be there. But, you know, you look at women's soccer and uh, what they've been able to achieve and they're playing on the same field and the same ball that the men are. um, And they're asking for more money. And but that's been on more of a national level, you know, uh, professionally. I don't know. I don't believe that their salaries are the same as the men's professionally soccer wise. And then uh, volleyball is volleyball is a different game. It's a lower net, and uh, and uh, certainly the uniforms are different, and marketing is big, being on TV, and certainly basketball has done that. Uh, the women's game is different than the men's, and yet we continue to still compare them, and here we are 22 years in the WNBA, and even we as announcers continue to compare players on the women's side to the men, mm-hmm. instead of saying, at this juncture, we need to say, oh, yeah, they block a shot like Margot Dedek or Lisa Leslie mm. or, you know, they play like Tina Thompson or Tisha Penichero or Teresa Weatherspoon or Cynthia Cooper. You know, we've got enough great players from the WNBA that play a certain way that let's start comparing them. But a lot of the audience still watch the men's game. And so they're familiar with a Steph Curry or a LeBron James or even a Kobe Bryant and so forth. But at this juncture, when are we as women going to support our women and compare them to the women? Yeah. And, uh, and so it's, it's still tough to sell is you've got to market it. And uh, I'm not saying I'm right, but if you, I, I think the uniforms have to change. I think that they have to be more attractive. And uh, I don't say you'd have to go spandex. But I think that you have to have a more attractive-looking uniform. And, uh, you know, Serena Williams at the French Open, she had her cat suit on. That's all everybody talked about. (laughs) And she basically said, you know, I felt like a superhero. I wanted to empower women. And I think that we have to take that. We have to take pride in how we look. And fortunately or unfortunately, um, I don't think it takes away from the talent of the, the ability that these women have. And uh, believe me, the, the uniforms we wore back in the 70s were a lot more attractive than they are today. Hmm. And um, I don't think you can go out there going look, looking what, like the guys. And, and I've had some friends tell me at some point, you know, that we've got to lower the basket because they want to see the dunk. You've got to bring people in. I've, said, I've heard from people saying you've got to create rivalries. You've got to create stars. You've got to create you know, in the sense of whether it's LeBron or Steph or, you know, these big names. And uh, you have that in Diana Trossi. You have that in Maya Moore. You have that in Candace Parker and Elena Deladon. And, uh, but, you know, why is it not being really kind of out there? Why are people not coming to watch these women play? I know they come out and watch Diana Trossi and Brittany Griner. Hmm. I mean, Diana Trossi has this magnetism about her that reminds me so much of Cheryl Miller. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just like they're Pied Pipers. I mean, one, they're, they're, uh, Cheryl was a fantastic player, as Diana is. And there's just something about them that just draws people that love their game because they play with such intensity. And, uh, 
And whether it's a positive or a negative, I think it's a positive, positive that they play like a guy. Hmm. You know, and I think that those conversations, a lot of what you mentioned from uniforms to lowering the rim to even style of play, those are conversations that quite honestly, I think some in the women's basketball world are, are um, not inclined to have um, because, you know, it, it can very much so divide the 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 fan base which a lot presumed to be in my opinion smaller than it actually is but in having those conversations I think that you open up to even if people disagree with you you open up people to as you were alluding to having that conversation you know basketball at the end of the day is still entertainment and I, I kind of hear you asking well what is women's basketball going to provide and bring to that entertainment value beyond just the, the X's and O's of the games, uh, of the game itself, excuse me. Um, but thinking of that, as you mentioned, you, you are an, an announcer. Would you say that maybe having women's basketball players or women's basketball fans, true women's basketball fans in those spaces can help draw that gap that, that someone like yourself can make a comparison to a Diana Taurasi, to a Cheryl Miller, um, you know, or, or, or things of that nature. Do we need more voices that know the history and know the women's game to be speaking about the game? Well, it's interesting. I mean, even on the men's side, when you listen to um, Shaq or, or Charles, and they don't know the history of the men's game. Hmm. I mean, when I was listening to Shaq the other day and uh, Ernie Johnson was saying, um, you know, Shaq, you're the number four, uh, number five all-time rebounder in Laker history. Who's number four? And uh, and Charles goes, well, just guess somebody. Guess Elgin Baylor. Guess, you know, make a name. And and Shaq had no idea. And it was Happy Harrison. And he's like, going, well, who's that? Mm. So, I mean, even on the men's side, they, they don't know the history of different players. And a lot of it has had to do with TV and certainly the Internet has helped tremendously. And, uh, you know, people say, well, who's the greatest? I love the fact that we have the argument today on who was the greatest women's player to play. And people are discussing, is it Diana Trossi? Is it, you know, Maya Moore? Is it Candace Parker? And, and certainly is it Lisa Leslie or Cynthia Cooper? And the fact that we even have that discussion is awesome. Mm. I love that we have that, that discussion. And, uh, but then what makes me, um, mad it still makes me mad that the ncaa will not recognize the women that played before quote ncaa took over in 83 and uh, they'll recognize the coaches records like a pat summit the sue gunner andy landers um jim foster uh coaches that coached aiaw and but yet they won't recognize um delta state or immaculata huh. And, and it, so they don't recognize what Lucia Harris did or myself, um, you know, mm. Lynette Woodard. And, uh, you know, and that's frustrating because you hear the announcers talking about the games. And again, it is about the players today. It really is. But you want to be able to have that history. But don't say, you know, it's, it's almost on the men's side. They, they don't go back to the UCLA days. They, you know, just the fact that they, they think of, of Bobby Knight went undefeated and you know was the last one to go undefeated well you know how many times coach Wooden went undefeated and they don't even talk about that but but it's it's the young guys no matter how much uh, information you have on the internet that both on the girls and boys side they don't know the history of 
of the game. They only know what's happening now. And uh, that's why it's so important to have announcers. And I love that more women are getting, that have played the game, are now getting into coaching or broadcasting or, or just being a part of the game. And uh, we've seen that so much on the men's side that guys have played, they've all become coaches or they've all become broadcasters or they've all become trainers or some, some you know, um, general managers or presidents or whatever. And, uh, and I think that that's important for women to step up and start taking those roles. And I think we are starting to see that, um, certainly in the WNBA, but I think you're right. And a lot of players that have, you know, retired not within the past decade um, are starting to get those spots, but have felt that, um, you know, that, that wasn't always available. Um, well, before, before Title IX, um, women on the high school and college level held 75% of the jobs as coaches. Mm. Because of Title IX, because there's more money in it now, Less than 50% of those jobs are held by women. Huh. And, and so, I, I mean, I support the men that have supported women in sports. Uh, most of your club teams today on any level of sport are on the female side are coached by men. There's, and uh, what is there's athletic directors in the major Division One programs. There's five, maybe eight women, maybe out of 300 and something or 400 and something major division one programs. So, I mean, we still have a ways to go. Indeed. Indeed. And I want to start closing out cause I want to be respectful of your time in particular. And, and let's, raise up some of those voices. As I said, a part of my conversation with you is to learn some of this history um, as, I, as I start to do my own research. Um, so who are some of the players um, or some contributors to women's basketball that you don't feel get, get their, their due time um, and are discussed, aren't discussed enough when it comes to really developing women's basketball as we know it today? Oh, gosh. I, you know... <clears throat> I, I don't have an answer. There's, there's way too many people, both men and women, that have contributed. And um, I just, you know, you just even go to the Women's Sports Foundation with Billie Jean King uh, creating that. It was so important for the growth of women in sports. didn't matter what sport. And uh, just to know that there, it kind of brings all the athletes together. Um, you know, again, the AIW days. And, uh, you know, Bill Wall from USA Basketball, um, who's passed away. But, you know, all the coaches that coach AAU back in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s uh, when it was uh, women's basketball at the beginning. And, um, you know, I, I just I think you, you shouldn't lose sight. But uh, I, I just love the opportunities that uh, even what you're doing. I mean, so many more women doing a podcast or, or having their web websites and uh you know kate fagan and and uh sarah spain and you know these young women that are have the opportunity whether it's at espn or fox or all these other different outlets that they have on radios and and tv outlets and cables and so forth uh, you know that's important to have a woman's voice out there and not just you know a sideline reporter i love that doris burke is you know has done play-by-play -play and color and sideline and she just does it all and uh Robin Roberts was one of the first to, yeah. you know, get out there and do that. So Beth Moen, as far as, uh, and um, Pam Ward doing play-by-play -play on football and other sports. And the same thing as a woman in, in, in writing um, in the sense of 
Christine Brennan and, uh, you know, people want them to do the women's sports because there are women. Mm. Well, women writers want to do the men's sports because that's where the most attention is and that's where they can get, you know, the most meat out of some, uh, out of a story. So just because you're a woman doesn't mean that you should just have to do women's stories. And uh, Mary Carrillo, um, you know, there's just so many athletes that are, have gotten into the broadcast side of things is important to have that face out there. Absolutely. And it's so many great names that you mentioned. Um, and as I said, I'll, I'll, I'll close out after this question. So now bringing it current, um, who are some of the players that, um, that have come into the league, into the WNBA in particular in the last, I'll give you for the last five years, who you think will take the game to the next level? Oh gosh. You know, you got Diana Trossi and Sue Bird still playing and uh, at the age of 37. And of course, Diana's going to be 37 in a couple of weeks. But, um, you know, the fact that, you know, the, and I mentioned them because uh, Sue's the all time assist leader and Diana is the all time scorer. Mm-hmm. And they're still going. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they are on the uh, 2020 Olympic team. Uh, that Don Staley, who was an Olympian and uh, played in the WNBA and mm-hmm. is at South Carolina and now coaching. And she's the uh, first black female that we've got coaching uh, USA basketball. And, uh, you know, Ann Donovan was, I think, our, or Pat Summit was our first uh, player coach um, who played in 76 Olympics and coached in 84. Yeah. But um, I just, you know, Holly, they're, they're, they're all so good coming out. And uh, certainly a lot of high expectations of Asia Wilson out of South Carolina, who's in Vegas right now. But, um, you know, we just played Washington the other day, and and, uh, Heinz Allen out of Louisville, and, and, um, uh, gosh, my mind is blank, the other kid that uh, they drafted just killed us. Yeah, Uh, Atkins, right? Atkins, Atkins out of Texas. Yeah. You know, he's a nice player. But, you know, the two kids that are in Dallas that uh, played – at South Carolina. And, uh, I mean, they're just, they're getting better and better and, uh, they know they have the opportunity to play, but, and that's the one thing I would suggest to young girls and young women, especially to the parents and the coaches that girls and women need to support girls and women. And so they can talk about wanting to play in the WNBA, but know who the teams are, know who the players are, support them. And, uh, when you ask young girls that are playing AAU ball, you know, who's your favorite player? And they say LeBron or Steph. And you're like, going, no, it should be Diana or Maya or Candace or Elena Deladon or, or, you know, Skylar Diggins or whatever. And um, I just think that there needs to be more support from the parents to expose their children to the women athletes. All great points and why I think it's so important to, to still have you involved in the game. Again, so many things that you've brought to the game and, and have seen throughout your career continue to bring in the broadcast booth. So so thank you for everything that you, you do for well, the game. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the, <laughs> you know that I'm still around. <laughs> indeed, indeed we do. Um, and and have you any plans to, to catch up with the contingency heading down to, to Tennessee? see this month well i i'm i'm on the board and uh because doug doug um i want to say doug mo it's not doug mo it's doug bruno <laughs> doug bruno the coach at uh depaul, yeah, DePaul yeah. yeah and uh, doug was the the coach of the chicago hustle 
so Doug and I are on the board and we had talked about the last couple of years that we need to get the WBL into the women's basketball hall of fame. And, uh, and Doug and I were pretty instrumental in, in getting that nomination through. And, uh, so there's going to be a lot of WBL players there, which I'm really excited about. Um, unfortunately I have to work. Um, fortunately I should say <laughs> that I'm working, uh, Mercury games on uh, Friday and, and Sunday. So uh-huh. I will not be able to be back there, which is, you know, unfortunate because, uh, I'm so proud of the WBL and, and the uh, history that they established in the women's game. It should be a good time. Be sad to, to miss you there, but um, I'm looking you'll forward get, you'll to it. Get, you'll get some good stories. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I certainly am looking forward to it. Well, and thank you again for, for chatting with me and, and for joining us here on Locked on Women's Basketball. Thank you and uh, continued success. Thank you so much.